Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. My name is Jacob. Um, I serve as the youth pastor here at Sunrise. Okay. Ah, it scared me. Uh, <laughs> it was like a threat. Oh, um, I'm excited to be here this morning. A couple of weeks, Pastor Paul told me, a weeks ago, uh, Pastor Paul told me that he needed me to preach on March 5th, which is today, um, because he and a couple of the other pastors were going to be going away to a men's retreat. And it didn't dawn on me until a, like a week later that that means that there's a men's retreat going on this weekend. So I didn't put two and two together, um, which means that there's a bit of an imbalance in the room. We've got like 79 guys, I think, that are, are gone on this trip. And so I can feel the imbalance. I don't know if you can feel the imbalance. Um, but I think that my hulking masculinity will get us through today. You know, I am the contribution to the, to the testosterone deficit. You know, I, I just want you guys to look at me as, as your captain through this dark time. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I have to let you in on a little secret this morning. Uh, promise not to tell anybody? Yeah? All right. Uh, it's being streamed. There's no getting away from it being everywhere. Um, my stomach's been a little upset this morning. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if it was the nerves or if it was the McDonald's I ate last night. Could have been either. I don't know. I'm, you know, it could have been either. Um, but anyway, so if you see me, like, book it for the doors all of a sudden, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's Satan. <laughs> So just, just know that. Uh, we have been uh, walking through the writings of Luke over the last couple of weeks, um, and we've been specifically tuning into the theme of prayer in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so today, we're going to be culminating, I think, our, our, our series on prayer, um, because we're right at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I think we're going to go into the book of Acts and trace prayer as well, but we're, we're finishing up Luke, I believe, today. Um, before we get there, though, I want to tell you a little story. So when I was in high school, I was not a very good student. Uh, I had fine grades, but it was because I figured out how to game the system. Um, I figured out which teachers were going to ask questions about the reading and which, quest which teachers were not going to ask questions about the reading. And if you didn't ask questions about the reading, 
I wasn't going to read. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, if, there's, if the homework was rated higher than the exams, then I'd focus more on the homework. If the exams were, uh, were rated higher than the homework, then I'd focus more on the exams. You know, it was, it was based off of how I could get the most amount of points for the minimal amount of effort, right? I was a pragmatist. So, I remember there was one year that I had a botany notebook due in my biology class. This was my ninth grade year. And it was a year-long project, assigned probably at the beginning of the spring semester, so we had plenty of time to work on it. And those are the, the projects that I'm the best at procrastinating, leaving to the very end of the semester. So it was about a week from the end of the semester, and I looked at the syllabus and realized my horrible error. I had not even started on this thing, and I had to collect, for this botany notebook, I had to collect, I think it was like 80 different specimens of plant life, you know, flowers and leaves from different species of plants all, the, all around Oregon. And I almost had a meltdown. I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done here? What have I done? So I conscripted the, the help of my parents, which I often did with these sorts of projects. I conscripted the help of my grandparents. Um, I, I had to get like a task force going. And the funny thing is my granddad couldn't help me with this project because he was helping me with a different project for my math class that I had also procrastinated to the end of the year. So um, I was panicked, we were perusing the neighborhood, we were going around, you know, scouring neighbors' lawns for, for special plants, and, um, and it wasn't just that I could, like, take all of these plants and put them in a wheelbarrow and bring them in, right? Like, I couldn't just bring in a mulch pile. Um, I wish I could have, but no, we had to press the plants, we had to dry the plants, make sure that there was no mold on the plants, and any mold, any kind of bugs, any, any imperfections would go against our grade. And so I was, I was losing it, right? So we were about 20 plants in, and they're all terrible specimens, and they're rotting, and it's terrible. And I looked again at the syllabus, and I realized that the project was only worth 7% of my grade. Oh, sweet relief. So I just let that one slide right off. So I turn in this just rotten notebook of tw like 20 of the 80 specimens that I was supposed to collect. And I think I got like two out of the 7%. It was pretty bad. Um, but that's kind of a snapshot of how I made it through high school. I would be surprised if I read more than five books cover to cover my entire high school career. And I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this. You're my priest today. I'm, I'm confessing to you. And I'm hoping, just like the secret I told you before, that you won't be sharing this with anybody. Um, I'm also hoping that none of my teachers get sent this on the live, because uh, that would be embarrassing. So, but I did make it through high school. Um, and I made it through high school with good enough grades to get into college, um, surprisingly. Uh, and in college, I decided I was going to turn over a new leaf, pardon the pun. Um, I was being given a fresh start, and a fresh start that I could use to learn the things that I was actually interested in. So there was no excuse at all for me not to put my all into studying, to do it as best as I could. And I was in a biblical studies major. So if you cheat or like fake your way through a biblical studies major, I think that's like a go directly to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200 kind of decision. So I, I was putting my all into it. Started working really hard, I was reading as much as I could. Um, I, I did my best to note take. I started getting really good grades. But then this started to prove itself to be 
a bit of a setback in and of itself because I was becoming the teacher's pet. You know, the one in the class with their hand always in the air. I had to have opinions on everything because I felt like I had to have opinions on everything. I was always asking questions, going a little bit deeper than everyone else was just to make sure that everybody knew I was the good student. It was not good. In my freshman and sophomore year, I became a nerd. And not the good kind of nerd, like the, um, actually, like that kind of nerd. I was that nerd. Um, and so I remember there was a student that came up to me one class. Uh, he was a year older than me. I didn't know this guy very well, but I'd had a couple of classes with him, so he was kind of in the peripheral. And um, he came up to me and he was like, hey, uh, you know, when I was starting college, I was just like you. I was the know-it-all. I was like, ooh. That was a little too honest. I think he was trying to be nice, like trying to be like empathetic, and it, that made it almost worse. So anyways, the last two years of my college career kind of mellowed out a little bit. Um, but the reason I tell you that is because as we read today, there's a character that I think can resonate with that kind of archetype, the, the, the teacher's pet, the person that's trying to suck up. Um, we're picking up in Luke chapter 23 today, and we're coming to a rather heart-wrenching part of the Gospel of Luke. In this text, it's like we're standing in the crowd watching the person that we thought was the Messiah be crucified. So that's where we're at in the story. I'm going to begin um, at verse 32 of chapter 23. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So the place that Jesus is being crucified was called the place of the skull. Um, you may have heard of uh, Golgotha. It's a transliteration from the Aramaic Golgotha, um, which means the place of the skull. Or you might have heard it referred to before as Calvary. Um, Calvary is the Latin translation of the place of the skull. Um, and so if you hear any of those terms, that's what it's talking about, the, the mountain on which he and the other two criminals were crucified. Um, a, a spiritual writer at the time of the Reformation would then go on to call Mount Calvary the Academy of Love. Isn't that a great way of saying that? Because in this moment, we find the love that God has for humanity coming to its, you know, its, its uh, culminating moment. Um, it is the moment that Jesus says the uh, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for, one's, for his friends, right? So this is the moment. This is the, the culminating moment. It goes on in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. So there's this grand mockery going on. But the irony in this is that the thing that they're mocking him about is the thing that he actually is. It's not like they're mocking him about something he isn't. They just think they're joking about the reality that Christ really is the king of the Jews. And here we come to our passage for the day. We're going to be sitting in, in verse 39 through uh, 43 today. Um, so let's go there now. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So for those of you who have been reading along with us in the New Testament, you've probably read through this. Or if those of you who have ever read the New Testament, or maybe you've even been to church before, like this is a pretty common story. You'll hear this preached often, the two criminals crucified next to Jesus and, and their conversation. But I do think it's so potent that Christ is making his final conversation a teaching moment. Even on this gruesome cross, Christ doesn't forsake his duty as a rabbi, as a teacher in Israel. And if Jesus is being the teacher here, then who are the students? The criminals on the cross. Now, the reason I told you about my years as a student is because I think it's easy to mistake the repentant thief, the thief that told Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's easy to mistake him as a teacher's pet. He's putting down the other classmate, he's siding with the teacher, and then he's kissing up to the teacher so that the teacher will give him a good grade in the end. It's easy to read it that way. And that's how I read it the first time. But as I kept reading over it, the Spirit showed me something that I hadn't noticed before. And so we're going to talk about that today. And I, I remember about a week ago, I was sitting at my desk, my eyes wide, my mouth open. I was just shocked. Anyways, we'll get there. First, let's switch on our microscope lens and go a bit deeper into what the words of this passage are. There's one in specific that I want to point out that I think is interesting. Um, and it's the words of the, are, that are related to the unrepentant thief. Um, I'm just going to call him the wicked thief from now on because unrepentant is a terrible, well, too, many, too many syllables. I, I don't want it. Um, so the wicked thief looks to Jesus, and the ESV says that he began to rail at him. He began to rail at him. Now, that's interesting because in Mark and in Matthew, the word there that's used is mock, not rail. So I was like, ooh, they're trying to tell me that there's something different here. So I went and looked under the hood. What's going on with this word? The word is blasphemeo, which means to blaspheme. Interesting. So what Luke is seeing about this person Jesus, whoever this Jesus guy is, he can be blasphemed like God. Interesting. So let's see what Luke categorizes as blasphemy then. What is it that he's calling blasphemy? He blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is, I don't know about you, this, this seems a little demanding to me, but I definitely wouldn't immediately label it as blasphemy. The wicked thief is baffled that the Messiah would die on a cross like him. And it seems like he's attempting to leverage the situation that he's in in the off chance that this really is the Messiah to get himself saved. And I think that all of us would do the same thing. If we were next up for the electric chair and the guy who was behind us in line was like, by the way, I'm the warden of the prison, wouldn't you be like, okay, so if you are who you say you are, the warden of the prison, you want to get us out of this mess, maybe? I don't know. We're both about to die. And especially, the criminal was Jewish, most likely. So he's expecting a Messiah. So this is not 
an abnormal request. This is actually a really obvious question. Hey, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, would you mind getting off your butt and doing something here? Because the nail holes aren't getting any smaller. If you're the Savior, then get to the saving, right? And I have to be honest, I've prayed prayers like that. I've prayed prayers where I tie what I'm asking for to the God that I'm asking it from. If you really are this God that you say you are, why aren't you answering me? If you are the God that you say you are, why haven't you answered my prayer? Why won't you do this for me? And oddly enough, it's not an uncommon form of prayer even in the scriptures. Abraham, I'm going to use Abraham as an example. You can see this in Job. You can see this in the Psalms. You can see it all over the place. People that kind of argue with God or, or use his, his personhood, his character as, as, a, as a leverage against him. But here's an example. This is Abraham arguing with God over the fate of Sodom. This is Genesis 18, 23 to 25, if you want to follow along. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. 50 righteous. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the, for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put, a, a righteous, put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If we rephrase that, we might say, are you not the judge of the whole earth? and judge justly, which sounds a lot like, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. So this is one of countless examples, but so against the backdrop of scripture, this isn't too abnormal of a prayer. But regardless, Jesus doesn't answer him. He remains silent. And instead, the other criminal pipes up in his defense. Look what he says. This is verse 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It seems as though the criminal has come to terms with his punishment. He's no longer fooling himself. He's untangled his fear or his anger about his sentence from his conscience. And he can see clearly that this is what he deserves. And in that moment of clarity, this criminal lectures the other one, basically saying, you know what you did. You know you deserve this. Take it like a man. But then, in that same moment of clarity, he makes note of the shining example of injustice, the one who does not deserve this reward, who's hanging between the two of them. This man has done nothing wrong. What an irony that in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of all of this trial, the most knowledgeable witness is the one that's hanging on the cross next to Jesus. What a coincidence that the man on death row is the one who speaks what is right, the one that nobody would have expected to speak what's right. All the elders, all the governors, all the religious leaders, those who were charged with keeping the standard of justice who were entrusted with righteousness, look Jesus in the face, look righteousness himself in the face, and they look the other way. They let what happens happen. But here's this criminal being executed for his crimes, 
and he uses his final words to speak the truth that everybody else has shoved under the rug. This man has done nothing wrong. Could it be that it was his acceptance of his death, his willingness to die even, that led this criminal to the truth? Because when you've accepted your death, you have nothing to lose in telling the truth. For the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for the Romans, the scribes, the truth would have been costly. To enter into the light would have exposed them for the frauds that they were. So they remained in the darkness to hide themselves. They traded the justice that they were entrusted with for status, for comfort. But here's this criminal, a holy fool of sorts, pointing out what must have been obvious to everybody, the unspeakable truth. This man has done nothing wrong. It seems like only when someone has come to terms with their sin, only when someone recognizes that they're not the hero of the story, they are often the victim and they're often the villain of the story, that they're able to speak the truth. Everyone who's holding on to the illusion that they're righteous in this story, the Pharisee, the governor, the onlooker, those who think they can wash their hands of the guilt, they're all blind to the truth. Their lie about themselves is causing them to miss the truth about everything else. It blinds them. Their lens is warped. Jesus um, tells a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee who go to the temple to pray, and he says, the, the tax collector comes and, and he, he's, he's remorseful, but the, the Pharisee comes boasting. Right? He's praying prayers like, God, I thank you that you've not made me like that tax collector, that I'm better than that. Whereas the tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, the tax collector is the one that went home justified that day. Christ in the Beatitudes says, uh, he doesn't, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. It would have been easy for him to say, blessed are the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for something, you can't already have it. You, have to, you can't be filled with it already. Otherwise, you, why would you be hungry? You have to know you need it. And if you fool yourself into thinking you're not hungry, you'll starve. It's those who hunger for righteousness that are blessed. So here's this criminal, and he's looking his punishment in the face. He's accepting that it's just even. And he's trying to get the other criminal to see that. And the other criminal can't see his sin. He's not noticing it. He won't acknowledge it. He's deluded. He's thinking that he deserves to be saved from his death, that he He's just like the other Pharisees, just like the Sadducees, just like the, the governors, the onlookers. Of the two criminals, perhaps guilty of the same crime, given the same punishment, facing the same fate, suffering the same pain, it's the one who confesses his sin that's saved. And what does that teach us about Jesus? What does that teach us about being a disciple? The church is not a place for healthy perfect, worthy people. The church is a place for honest people, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The church is a place for people who are willing to confess and plead 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so if you walk in these doors and you're not willing to confess your sin, if you're not willing to confess that you're a sinner, if you think that you have something to offer by yourself, this place isn't for you. You're not going to find what you're looking for here. This place is filled with broken people. <laughs> this is not going to be the club you want to hang out in. But if you come wearing your, your sinfulness on your sleeve, this place is for you. Uh, some of you just went through the five-week or week, week five of the 10-week discipleship journey, the Strongholds Week. Raise your hand if you've been through the, the Strongholds Week already. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing the scattering of hands. It's a, a quintessential part of that week is confession. Admitting that we're broken, it's uncomfortable. It's risky, it's scary. But in the end, it frees us from lying to ourselves. It, and it opens us up, it opens up reality to us in a unique way, in a way that not many other disciplines actually can. Confession is a vital part of being a follower of Christ. Anyways, that aside, it's at this point in the story that my jaw hit the floor. This is the moment where I'm, you know, I'm staring at my, at my computer screen at this verse, and it just shocked me. So let's see what, what the penitent thief says next, what the good thief says. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If we read it too quickly, it's easy to pass by these words. They sound like a deathbed conversion, a dying man's frantic Hail Mary pass at redemption. It's easy to hear in these words the posture of the teacher's pet, the pathetic longing for attention, the craving for validation, the subtle arrogance. And it's easy, it's easy to read that. But when we remember who speaks these words, where they're spoken, and especially where Jesus is as he's hearing these words, I think they might just constitute the most faithful words to Jesus in all of the Gospels. And I know that's a large claim. I'm going I'm to try to show you what I mean. The king of the Jews that this criminal was talking to, that he was addressing these words to, was hanging from a cross. The king was hanging from a cross. Imagine any political leader or ruler that's being executed. Are they at the height of their power? Was Muammar Gaddafi, when he was being dragged through the streets of Libya, was, was he at the height of his power? When Abraham Lincoln had the barrel of the gun pushed back to the back of his head, was that when he was his most presidential? When Julius Caesar was being stabbed over and over again by the people that he thought were his friends, was that his most imperial moment? No, obviously not. So why would this criminal, who's dying alongside this man, see the blood dripping from his back, the holes in his feet and hands, the crown of thorns, the labored breathing, the death rattles of this guy, and, and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kingdom? What kingdom was there? This man was about to die. The 12 disciples scratched their heads at the notion that Jesus would have to suffer and die. They couldn't wrap their mind around that plan. In fact, Peter even rebukes Jesus for saying that this is the plan that he has. But here's this criminal staring into the gaunt face of a crushed man, and he sees in the eyes of Jesus the suffering servant. He understood what even Peter couldn't understand. 
that the serpent had to be allowed to wound the heel of the Son of Man, that the Messiah must suffer, that the life of the world must be allowed to sink down into the depths of death, to fill it with the brim, to the brim with life. It had to happen this way. And he sees a kingdom in it. And this leads to my big idea for the day. If you're going to go home and meditate on one thing, pray about one thing, think about one thing, write one thing on your fridge or on the forehead of your oldest child, please send me a picture of that if you do it. You'll get extra pastor points for that one. It's this. The kingdom is in the cross. The kingdom is in the cross. Here between these two crosses, the eyes of a dying sinner met the eyes of the Lamb of God. Here the criminal comes to see Jesus' cross as his inauguration. Truly this was the king of the Jews. He saw that through the doors of death, Jesus is the king. That Jesus, and Jesus validates this in his response. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. Notice that he doesn't say in three days when I'm resurrected from the grave, when I conquer sin and death, when, I, when I'm uh, given all authority in heaven and on earth, then you'll be with me in paradise. No, this day, on that day, the criminal and Jesus would be together in paradise. It was that day. The wicked criminal thought that life was found in being saved from the cross. He thought he needed to be saved from the cross. The wise criminal understood that life was found through the cross, that the kingdom was in the cross. And so now we come to the crux of the matter, and pardon another pun. <laughs> we Christians believe something that's counterintuitive, and it's not something that's incidental to our faith. It's the very, very heart of our faith. We're taught by Christ that this life as we know it is not true life. This, this life in this world is lying to us. That true life is found in death and that the life we find in this world actually reeks a lot more like dying. We aren't called to live our best life now. Amen. We couldn't if we tried. Our best life is found in the wounds of Jesus. True and abundant life is the love that's displayed on Mount Calvary, the Academy of Love. The love that only God can give, the love that only God can work in us, the love that pours out life for one's friends. So when you look at the man hanging from the tree, what do you see? Do you see a fool that's just claiming to be a king? A savior that can't be bothered to save anybody? Do you see a lost cause? Do you see a romantic but fruitless display of affection? Because that's what the first thief saw. But the second thief saw something far different. The second thief saw the, a king ascending to his throne. The second thief saw in the crucified Jew hanging next to him the power of an emperor. The second thief saw that Jesus' rejection of this world was actually where his power shined most. Jesus wasn't satisfied to take them down off of the cross so that they could go off and live in the ashes of this broken world. Jesus' death was the condemnation of this world in himself, the crucifixion of humanity, the sinful brokenness 
that we bring to the table, the sinful flesh of Adam. Jesus' death was God's booming no to Adam and his children. Jesus' suffering was to offer eternal life to those who would suffer with him. And that's supposed to be us. That's supposed to be the church. We are those who are dying to this world with Jesus. We're the people chosen for death. The gift of life that's been granted to us has been wrapped with death. I know this all sounds complicated. I know if it's not complicated to you that it's at least counterintuitive. But the reality is so simple. Jesus isn't going to save you from death. He's going to save you through it. He is saving you through it. So if we as disciples or as students are to follow our rabbi, our teacher, we must learn that the cross is the tool that he uses to teach us. That the cross is the very center of our discipleship. Our teacher told us early on in his ministry that the, only, the, the, that the one who seeks to walk behind him must take up his cross and follow him. Jesus doesn't take us off the cross. He puts us on it. His objective is not to rescue us. It's to rescue, or it's, it's to resurrect us. Not to rescue, but to resurrect. So, let's make it practical. We're talking about the theme of prayer right now in the Gospel of Luke. And here, we have two prayers. They're both words spoken to Jesus in petition. The first criminal asks Jesus to take him off the cross so that he can live his life in the world even if it might mean forsaking his soul. His eyes aren't on the kingdom, they're on the world. And Jesus makes it incredibly clear to us in the Gospel of John and all throughout the Gospels that his kingdom is not of this world. The two are mutually exclusive. They actually repel each other. Jesus doesn't answer the first thief. He doesn't speak back to the first thief because he understands that he's being used in this man's pursuit of the world. He's just a tool. But the second criminal offers a prayer with eyes fixed, not on the cross, but beyond it. Beyond the moment's suffering, into the glory of a kingdom. And like Jesus, the second thief doesn't despise the cross for it, because he sees that the kingdom is in the cross. He accepts the cross in order to gain the kingdom. So when you pray, do you pray like the first thief, asking to be taken off the cross, so that you can gain the world even if it means losing your soul? Or do you pray like the second, willing to forfeit the world, willing to let go in order to gain being in paradise with Jesus? This is what following Jesus will get you. It will get you crucified. And the day that you're crucified, that's the day that you'll be with Jesus in paradise. So I have to take a step back now as we close, I've been struggling a lot with prayer recently. The example I gave earlier is, is not like a long time ago, like this week. <laughs> uh, the prayers that I've been offering have often sounded like, if you really were who you say you are, why aren't you doing anything? Sound a lot like the first thief. Um, and those prayers often feel like they go from my mouth to the ceiling and then just come right back to me. And it's made me frustrated with God. But when I come to preach, I'm oftentimes preaching mostly to myself. There's kind of a healing aspect in getting to preach on a passage because it allows the Spirit to confront me with that message. 
And I, man, all week I've been asking myself the question, am I, am I missing the forest for the trees here? Am I so bent on getting what I want from God that I've forgotten that the God that I'm asking it from was the one that died on the cross on Mount Calvary? Have I begun to view my best life now as God's first priority? And, and maybe there's some of you who are with me in that. So as you pray for your kids to develop well, as you pray for your relationship uh, to, to be stronger, your marriage to blossom, or maybe to, to have a relationship at all, maybe you're single, as you pray for financial providence or you pray for uh, a new job or to keep the job that you have or to be promoted at the job you have or that the people at your job would you know, treat you differently, as you pray for an answer to a question that's bugging you, as you pray about the chronic pain that you're feeling, or the illness that you've been dealing with for a long time, or the illness that you just found out that you have, so you're praying for healing, do you ever find the cross inconvenient? Like an inconvenient fact about discipleship. Do you despise your cross? Because I do. I often do, and I can't imagine that I'm alone in that. If you can relate to me in that, I think that the first thief has something to teach us. The kingdom's in the cross. The kingdom starts with the crown of thorns. So, for example, maybe you're praying. There have been, been talks in the economy that um, there's maybe a recession that's rolling in. Um, and I think probably a lot of us have thought about our job security, right? Um, maybe you're praying that you just would be allowed to keep the job that you have. And, and maybe this week your boss calls you into their office and your stomach you know, is starting to churn as you sit down at the desk. And, uh, and maybe they say to you, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. Maybe your job got automated, they found a better candidate, or they just can't sustain the position anymore. And maybe you're walking out of there and you're thinking to yourself, God, what are you doing? I thought you were going to provide for me. I thought you were going to keep me safe. And that, those are natural feelings to have. That's natural thoughts. You're not going to be able to avoid those. But for those of us who think like the first thief, you might be tempted to give up on God there. You might be tempted to walk away, or at least to take a break. Maybe you start praying shallower prayers. Or maybe you just, you know, you don't, don't talk to him as much anymore. Maybe you say, I expected better from you. You're, you disappointed me, God. But those of us with a mind like the second thief will look through bitter tears at our circumstances and will remember that our Messiah, our King, was crowned with a crown of thorns. That his disaster, his suffering, and his death not only led to his resurrection, but to the resurrection of humanity to the redemption of the world, that there is a paradise lurking beyond the cross. Those of us with a heart like the second thief might look at Jesus and say, show me the kingdom in this. Show me the kingdom that's, that's just beyond this cross. Show me where the kingdom is. So we're about to open the tables for communion. I'll invite the worship team up. Um, this is a perfect time for you to think about the call of the cross because we, we remember in communion 
what Jesus did for us on the cross, the love that was poured out on Calvary. So as you come up and you, you partake of the, the table, ask yourself the question, in the cross that I'm carrying, where is the kingdom? In the pain that I'm suffering, where is the paradise? And if you can't get a clear answer to that, do you trust that there will be one? Not because of what you see, but because of who you're following, because of the one you follow. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that my, my prayers are, are so much like the prayers of the first thief so often. And I feel dejected when, when you decline to answer. Um, just like Jesus staying silent, I, I feel shirked. But Lord, I, I can't help but think maybe it's me. I'm the one that's praying wrong. And, and maybe there are those in this room who are feeling that with me. So Lord, would you teach us to have a heart like the second thief? To have a heart that's willing to not only confess our sin, but that wants to see the kingdom that lies beyond their cross. Give us eyes for your kingdom, Jesus. In your holy name we pray, amen.